All right, well, good morning. As you know, Sean and I do kind of like a, I guess you call it a pulpit swap. He was here last month. I'm going to be there next week. But there was a little bit of a mix-up because I got a call from the church a couple days ago wanting to know if I had slides for this Sunday. And I got my dates all turned around, so they were scrambling to fix things. I think Sean had to give up deer hunting today or something to fill in. So it wasn't maybe that bad. But I'm here <laughs> and not there. So, all right. So um, this morning we continue our series on basic apologetics. We're looking at a very weighty question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? When talking with non-believers, it seems to me that this is where the conversation eventually uh, needs to go. In fact, Anyone uh, will pick up from just a casual reading of the book of Acts that this is what the apostles and others were preaching over and over. The gospel they proclaimed, well, they anchored it on an event, the resurrection of Jesus. And indeed, everything turns on whether this actually happened or not. Um, there is a lot writing on it, to borrow an expression that Tim used last week, because it is true. There is a lot writing on this. If Christ's resurrection did not happen, as we know, then, of course, the whole thing is a big sham, and Christians are the greatest of fools. We really are. If, however, it did happen, then everything Jesus said and did is 100% true, and only a fool would dismiss his teachings, uh, dismiss his commands, his promises, his prophecies, and warnings, and not to mention his work of atonement. So helping the non-believer see this will hopefully send him in the right direction. Oftentimes, what we find is that they are not really asking the right questions. They want to talk about side issues like the hypocrisy of Christians or how Christianity is homophobic and point out all the religious wars throughout the history of the world that Christians are responsible for and complain about how oppressive our religion is and so on. And there are, of course, ways to respond to those objections and complaints, but in the bigger picture, they really are secondary. The first and foremost question isn't whether Christianity is agreeable or not, but whether it is true. And that's where we need to point them. If it is true, then really it wouldn't matter whether it is homophobic, bloodthirsty, hypocritical, oppressive, and so on. Truth is truth. And that question of whether the Christian faith is true or not squarely rests on whether the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. As Tim talked about, Jesus made these outrageous claims about who he was, claims that cannot be ignored or, or explained away. The, he claimed to be the promised Messiah, the very Son of God himself, and that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament's Son of Man. And Nate pointed out that Jesus conducted himself accordingly. He didn't just say these things. He really did believe them based on the kinds of things he did and the way he interacted with others, the way he conducted himself. And for this, of course, he was crucified by the Jewish and Roman leaders. The whole thing would have blown over if he had remained in the grave because a dead Messiah would be no, no Messiah at all. But there are reasons to believe that he did not remain in the grave and that three days later, as it is reported, he really was, really was resurrected. God did for him what only God could do. And this, of course, means everything. And so we don't want to get bogged down in how offensive or disturbing or even repugnant Christianity might seem. That can all be addressed. But the real question, the first and foremost important question, is whether... Again, Christianity is true or not. 
And that question is answered by whether Christ's resurrection actually happened. In fact, this is one of those really major things that sets Christianity apart from other religions. Not just the claim that its leader and founder was resurrected from the grave, which itself is pretty heavy duty, but the fact that such a claim is subject to scrutiny. It can be checked out, which makes Christianity the most vulnerable of all religions. It opens itself up to being proven wrong. And if proven wrong, then Christianity needs to be rejected as a fake religion, not worth a, a shovel full of manure. But if it is true, then all of the other religions are fake, and they need to be disposed of. As Kerry pointed out a couple weeks ago, this vulnerability, this exposure to being examined and scrutinized is something that we don't find in, in um, religions that, for instance, are based uh, only on philosophical ideas, and there are a number of those. You know, like Eastern religions and other forms of mysticism, they, they make no historical claims that can be verified or falsified. They just present principles, philosophies for you to contemplate and try out. Even those religions that try to anchor themselves in some historical event are careful to limit their exposure, if you notice. Uh, for instance, the event that lies at the heart of Islam is Muhammad receiving revelations from the angel Gabriel in a remote cave but there's no way to prove or disprove it. Followers are required to accept it on blind faith. The same is true of, with Mormonism, and the claim is actually quite similar. Joseph Smith claims that he received revelations from an angel named Moroni, who gave Smith 24 golden plates. But again, there's no way to prove it or disprove it. We have to take Smith's word for it, himself a convicted con artist. We have no golden plates, he supposedly translated them into English and gave them back to the angel, and followers are required to accept his word on it. Blind faith. This is quite a contrast to Christianity, and this needs to be emphasized. Blind faith is not required. In fact, throughout the Bible, blind faith is actually discouraged. And Paul, when talking to skeptics, actually would make that point. He would say, look, a whole bunch of people have seen Jesus alive from the dead. They're in Jerusalem. There's at least 500 of them. Go talk to them. Check it out. See for yourself. He invites skeptics to disprove it. Now, for us, 2,000 years later, we do something similar. We take this claim about his resurrection and we run it through the fire. Was the tomb he was buried in actually empty? What evidence do we have? These witnesses who claim to have seen him alive from the dead, how reliable are they? Are there other ways to explain what supposedly took place? Perhaps his followers stole the body. How sure are we that he actually died in the crucifixion? Perhaps people hallucinated and thought they saw Jesus, and so on. We subject the claims and all the possibilities to a battery of tests and then ask ourselves, what is the best explanation of the facts that we have? Now, last Sunday, Tim showed us what Jesus thought about himself, who Jesus thought he was. Now, the fact that Jesus believed that he was the promised Messiah and the Son of God, of course, does not necessarily make it so. But if not, the remaining options are quite troublesome. He must therefore be a lunatic or a liar, a madman or a huckster. And most skeptics are not comfortable in suggesting that sort of thing. But the answer doesn't rest solely on eliminating the disagreeable options. The claims that Jesus made about himself would all be true if, again, he rose from the dead. Everything rides on this. 
As we often say, the resurrection is God's amen to everything Jesus said and did, including the claims he made about himself. God did for Jesus what only God could do, and in so doing, validated his teachings and ministry, and very important, validated his work of atonement. The resurrection of Jesus is how we know that God accepted his sacrifice as a payment for our sins. It provides us the assurance we need. It is how we know, objectively know, that our sins really have been forgiven. And this, I believe, is the kind of stuff we would want to bring up when sharing the gospel. So, back to apologetics. Now, when I was a kid, virtually everyone, at least here in the rural Midwest, Christian and non-Christian alike, more or less had a high view of the Bible and would not really question anything it said. And indeed, Christ's resurrection wasn't something that non-Christians doubted or struggled with. The obstacle to the faith wasn't really intellectual, but moral. Like today, people loved their sins and just did not want to give them up. The whole thing of repentance was the obstacle. The issue, you know, wasn't the Bible. It was pride or pleasure or both. But generally, speak, generally speaking, people today don't view the Bible in the same way. There's been a lot of shift here in the last 60 years. Uh, there's 50 years. I've lost count. But... There is still the obstacle of loving sin, but on top of that, there are so-called objections as well uh, that are becoming more prevalent, and sometimes they are honestly held, and sometimes these objections, of course, are nothing more than convenient excuses to justify the pride and pleasure lifestyle that a person is committed to. And so while, while many today may have certain sentimental feelings about the Bible, as they might recall their grandmother reading stories from it to them, it is, however, often dismissed as a book that consists of both facts and fiction, you know, truths and myths. Whatever the case, the point is, it's not always that effective to simply read the resurrection accounts from the Gospels, for instance, telling the non-Christian, see, it says it right here, you know, to anyone who is even the least bit skeptical of the Bible, quoting verses from it probably will not carry that much weight. And so two things come to mind here. First, Christians, of course, need to be equipped in showing that the scriptures are trustworthy and that the history recorded in its pages is reliable and can be trusted. It is not at this point necessary to prove that the Bible is God's word or is infallible or inerrant and so on. All we need to do initially is show them what it says about the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection, that what it says about that of Jesus has merit and should not be so quickly dismissed. And Carrie, of course, addressed this two weeks ago and presented a very compelling case and equipped us in that. The second thing that comes to mind, and is what I want to spend some time on today, is that every Christian should be able to offer at least a sufficient case for the resurrection, a sufficient case, without relying heavily on Scripture, if any. And this can be done. It's often referred to as the minimalist approach. And the idea is pretty simple. Let's take those facts that are not seriously disputed by anyone, as few as they may be, and let's build a case from those. Granted, the case will not be a home run or a slam dunk, but for our purposes, it doesn't need to be. For our purposes, it is sufficient to just get the person thinking. As we often say, to quote Greg Kokel, to put a pebble in their shoe. If nothing else, to create some doubt about their own skepticism. And though the ultimate goal is to see the individual surrender his life to Christ, 
We don't have to get there in 10 minutes or even in one afternoon. And the minimalist approach can be quite effective, at least on that level. But at the same time, the minimalist approach is more or less kind of like the last resort, you might say. It's there if we need it, but we may not even need it. It's quite possible that the non-Christian you are engaged with may accept a lot of what the New Testament says. And so our task, again, is pretty straightforward. Take whatever facts both of you can agree on from the Bible and outside the Bible, show him that the resurrection is the best explanation of those facts, and then show him what this means. Given that the claims about Jesus are true, how then should we live? You know, that is, what does this mean to us personally? And this then, this truthfulness of the gospel becomes the basis for the whole discussion about repentance, forgiveness, salvation, submitting to Christ's lordship, and so on. Okay, does all that make sense? Everyone following me so far? All right. Now, for this morning, we don't have time to make an exhaustive case for Christ's resurrection, get into all the details. Volumes of, book have been, volumes of books have been written on this. We have some of them in our library. But we do have time to look at the basic case itself, which rests on three main facts. And even though it's been a while since we have talked about these, I'll assume that many of you are familiar with them nonetheless. And if so, then this will serve as a good review this morning. And if not, then this stuff needs to be in that compartment of your brain where you keep that stuff that we call, you need to know this, all right? So here they are, and we're not going to use any slides at this point, no visual. You just need to take the effort to remember them if you haven't already. We have the empty tomb. We have the resurrection appearances. Jesus appears to many people alive from the dead, and we have the birth and rise of the Christian faith. So we have the empty tomb. We have the resurrection appearances. We have the birth and rise of the Christian faith, right? All together, we have the empty tomb, we have the resurrection appearances, we have the birth and rise of the Christian faith. Got it? All right. The best explanation for these three facts, especially when all of them are taken together, is that Jesus really was crucified and buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And again, this is what the whole gospel rests on. So we'll look at each of these, but I'll spend more time on the third one because it is with it where we can implement this minimalist approach that I talked about earlier. So let's start with the fact of the empty tomb. Now, very important because some people have overplayed this and we don't want to do it. The empty tomb does not prove the resurrection, but you can't have a resurrection without it. Everyone see this? And this is why this is so significant. You know, present the corpse of Jesus and Christianity falls. There has always been debate on how it became empty and what its emptiness means, but not on the claim that it was empty. The fact that the Jewish authorities tried to bribe the Roman guards to say that the body of Jesus was stolen confirms you know, that at that time, the emptiness of the tomb was just too notorious to be denied. It was never doubted. Indeed, if the body of Jesus was in the tomb, all the Jewish leaders would need to do to kill these reports about the resurrection, which they were quite obsessed in doing, as you recall from the book of Acts, would be just to simply parade the corpse of Jesus up and down the streets of Jerusalem. But that's not what happened. And, but if that had happened, it would have killed the movement immediately. Now, some have claimed that Jesus wasn't buried, that his body was simply discarded in some massive open pit where wild dogs ate it or was left on the cross for the birds to eat. 
Um, these are old objections. They have been sufficiently addressed over the years. Won't spend a lot of time on this, but simply put, we have no reports on anything like this, but even so, there, would have, there still would have been a corpse of some sort, even if just skull and bones. And again, the authorities could have just taken advantage of that. Behold, your Messiah, your dead Messiah. Others have tried to argue that he was buried in another tomb, and people accidentally arrived at the wrong one, an empty one, and started claiming, resurrection, 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 because they went to the wrong tomb. But this is plagued with the same problem. To refute the reports of the resurrection, the authorities could have just pointed people to the tomb where he was buried, right? And so on. And very important, such theories can account for the number of eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Jesus alive from the dead. First-hand witnesses. So let's now turn our attention to that one. Number two, the resurrection appearances. Think about this. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to Peter, to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, to all of his disciples, including Thomas the Doubter, to 500 brethren, to a group referred to as all the apostles, which probably included missionaries wider than the 12, to his youngest brother, James, who actually was a skeptic um, of everything about Jesus and his ministry, to Saul of Tarsus, a hostile opponent of the faith, a persecutor of Christians. And he met with his apostles often during that 40-day period between his resurrection and ascension. Now, some might suggest that all these people conspired together to fabricate a story about the resurrection of Jesus, but that explanation just has too many problems. Too many people are involved in that conspiracy. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. Too much suffering involved, and when trying to hold it together, you would expect that whole thing to implode. It's just too unlikely also that James and Paul would be a part of this conspiracy. So agreeing with all this, others have suggested that though they were not deceivers, they were, however, all of these so-called witnesses, they would say, they weren't deceivers, but they were delusional. They thought they saw Jesus, but instead they were actually hallucinating. They were so emotionally wrapped up in their desire to see Jesus that their minds produced projections of what they wanted to believe. And this, too, is another old objection that has been addressed through the years and it's highly unlikely on a number of levels. We have reports of Jesus appearing on many different occasions, not just one, and to many different people at many different places. He appeared to both believers and non-believers, to followers and enemies, to believers and skeptics. Hallucinations just can't account for this sort of thing. James and Paul were certainly not obsessed with the desire to see Jesus, but yet they claimed to have seen him. And many of these accounts were physical in nature, something that hallucination cannot explain. People walked with Jesus, ate and drank with him, touched him, held on to him, carried on extensive conversations with him, spent hours with him, and so on. He met with his disciples many times, again, during that 40-day period. Hallucinations really can't account for these facts. Others have suggested that Jesus never really died that he fainted on the cross and everyone assumed he had died. And later, in the coolness of the tomb, he woke up and his strength was somehow revived. This theory called the swoon theory is another old one, and, and it just cannot take it seriously. I mean, the image here is pretty striking. Try to visualize this. Jesus has been beaten multiple times. He's been flogged and whipped twice. Maybe the 40 minus 1 on those, not sure. 
His hands had been nailed to a cross. His feet had been nailed to a cross. His head wearing this painful crown of thorns. He has now been hanging on a cross for several hours. Earlier, we know he was so weak from the beatings and the whippings that he couldn't even carry that cross. He's suffering. He's thirsty. Finally, a spear has been thrusted into his side to make sure that he is dead. He is then wrapped up tightly in grave clothes. And now, three days later, he somehow manages to, cl to climb out of those grave clothes with these crippled up hands and move an incredibly large stone sealing the entrance um, and crawl through the streets of Jerusalem to the upper room. He can't walk because his feet have been pierced with nails and he somehow manages to climb up into the upper room and there before his disciples, all beat up and bloodied, weak and frail, crippled and mangled up, declares himself as the Lord of glory. Can you imagine this? It's... <laughs> and then they respond with overwhelming joy, even worshiping, convinced that he is resurrected. It just doesn't make any sense. The explanation really is laughable. Now, in regards to the resurrection appearances, one of the most compelling arguments for it really is the radical conversions of James and Paul. We don't want to overlook that. James, the brother of Jesus, was a skeptic. And Paul, a Pharisee, was a hostile persecutor of the faith, persecuted Christians. Both became passionate followers of Jesus after encountering him alive from the dead, one-on-one -on -one in person. And this is just virtually impossible to explain away. In the end, any attempt to explain away all of these reports that people saw Jesus alive from the dead, they just simply fail. The best explanation is that these reports are true, and they explain the birth and rise of the Christian faith, which leads us to fact number three. The church, this early Christian movement, which grew so rapidly, even against much opposition, was caused by something. And the New Testament tells us that this something was the preaching of Christ's resurrection. The early Christians believed Jesus was the Messiah, but again, a dead Messiah would be no Messiah at all. And it is beyond the scope of reason to suggest that thousands of people would, at the time, become part of a vibrant and growing and robust movement if it were all built on a hoax, a hoax that could be proven to be a hoax, and that they would all join a movement that would virtually guarantee hardship and persecution, not just from the authorities, Roman and Jewish, but also from family and friends and the communities in which they lived. A movement that, when you think about this, you know, they emphasize forgiving enemies. Boy, that's a real draw. Submitting to authorities. Yeah, I want in on that. Sharing your possessions with others. Denying yourselves. Boy, I can't resist. You know, a movement that admonished its followers to exhibit humility and selflessness and love for all. How can that even happen? It's not a movement that would attract me. Well, it can happen if those who became a part of it were convinced that the teachings of its founder were the teachings of God himself. And the thing that convinced them of this would be his rising from the grave three days after his crucifixion. They believed the testimony of those who had seen Jesus alive from the dead. The evidence available to them at the time was persuasive. It cannot be denied. And they believed what the apostles said about what this resurrection actually meant. 
But keep in mind that these early followers were not in some sort of vacuum, this whole thing. I mean, there's a context, there's a whole framework here. Many of them had seen Jesus before his crucifixion. They had heard him teach. They had watched him heal others and do miracles. Some of them may have been healed themselves by Jesus at, one, at some point in his ministry. We are told of large crowds that gathered around him during his ministry. Then we could assume that some of these new converts, for instance, might have been part of the 5,000, that group that he fed, or that other occasion with the 4,000. Some might have been there when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, or when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, or witnessed his death on the cross and the manner in which he died. And some of me even had heard him predict his death and resurrection. Whatever the case, the testimony about his rising from the dead was believable, given what many already knew to be true about him. Not to mention the miracles the apostles performed, which were done in the name of Jesus, which itself testifies to his resurrection. So this third point here, the birth and rise of the Christian faith of the church, is where we can implement, if necessary, this minimalist approach. We can take advantage of simple, well-established facts no reasonably informed person would dispute, facts that the Bible speaks of, but yet facts that can be established apart from the Bible. And so for that individual who just isn't willing to, he who just isn't willing to hear anything from Scripture, well, we could work with that. We don't have to walk away. We could work with that if we need to. And there are many that can be included on this list I'm going to share, but I've got 10 that I think stand out, and as you see, there'll be some overlap, but I just want to make sure that nothing's missed, and if some of them sound like too basic, um, too obvious, well, that's okay, because oftentimes the strength of the argument lies in the fact that they are basic and obvious. And I think it, and as we go into this, I think it's just, as we're interacting with a non-believer, I think the obvious, the best approach is to simply ask obvious questions. Be ready to explain the facts, but instead of just shoving things at him, put the ball in his court and see how he plays it. And also, just, um, just to say this, this only works with the person who's being reasonable. If we have someone who's just being difficult and belligerent, then um, we don't want to waste our time on that. Because our objective here is not to win an argument or to put someone in their place, but to simply address any honest intellectual objections a person might have that keeps them from embracing the gospel right? Okay, still got everybody with me? All right, so here we go. Now for the slides. There is a Christian faith. It's pretty obvious. Everyone agrees on that. You can't dispute this one because, in fact, it's the largest religion in the world. So how did this faith get started? What happened? What caused it? Give him a chance to talk about it. And when he says something that doesn't quite line up, then ask another question about what he just said. Questions like, well, where did you get that from? And how do you know that is true? And how sure are you might prove to be helpful in that interaction. Questions need to be strategic but not condescending. Most people are going to acknowledge that the very fact of Christianity itself points to a founder, namely Jesus. And this leads us to the second question. <clears throat> there was a man in the first century named Jesus. We know this to be the case from sources outside the scriptures. So who do you think Jesus was? Who do you, th uh, you know, why do you think that? Who do you think Jesus thought he was? Now at this point, you may or may not want to challenge his responses. All we want to do is get is to just get the person to think about it and to articulate what he believes about Jesus of Nazareth. 
At some point, it will probably be obvious that most of what he believes is derived from the Gospels, you know, the very documents that supposedly is off-limits in the discussion. You know, where did you get this idea that he preached about love and forgiveness? Where'd that come from? What makes you think he was a countercultural revolutionary? Where did you read that? You know? Number three, Jesus was crucified by the Romans. Again, this is a well-established fact. Why was he crucified? Simple question. This can feed into the question before it. For instance, if he thinks that Jesus was just a great moral teacher who liked to talk about peace and love, then why was he executed by the government? What was so threatening about that? What law did he break? If nothing else, the crucifixion of Christ testifies to just how controversial he was. And that controversy is all about who he claimed to be. Another fact. The early Christians believed Jesus was the primus Messiah, prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, the Son of God. Why did they believe this? Where did this come from? Did Jesus believe that about himself? Number five, the early Christians also believed Jesus rose from the dead, and, went, and they went around telling everyone that this is what happened. So where did this belief come from? What's behind it? Well, maybe somebody made it up. Maybe people were confused and mistaken. Maybe it really happened. But whatever explanation is provided, it has to fit with everything else that we know to be true. And this is all part of what something we call the explanatory power. Number six, the early Christians also believed Jesus was God and worshipped him as God. Again, we know this from sources outside the Bible. Where did, you know, why did they do this? What led them to that conclusion? What would compel them to actually worship someone who had been condemned by the religious leaders, cursed as a devil, and executed as a criminal? This is the opposite of what you would think. Number seven, a whole movement rose up and flourished based on these beliefs about Jesus. So again, as you see, this is the birth and rise of the Christian faith argument. So what exactly ignited this movement? What kept it going? Why did it grow? What convinced so many people uh, that these claims about Jesus were true? For this movement to grow as fast as it did and as far, there had to be a rapid and passionate spreading of some message, some news, some teaching that people that day found to be convincing. What convinced them? Number eight. We really do need to move that projector. I cannot see <laughs> those words back there. <clears throat> Number eight, the early Christians suffered persecution for these beliefs, especially those who claimed to have seen Jesus alive from the dead, as in the twelve. If the disciples made the whole thing up, then why didn't they just fess up when beaten and threatened with death? What was there to gain? Now, do some people die for a, a lie? Yes, happens all the time, especially if they don't know it's a lie. Do some people die for what they know to be a lie? Not usually, but it can happen if there is something else to be gained by it, as in protecting a member of the family. You know, kill me if you will, but I'm not changing my story. My wife had nothing to do with it. But what did the disciples stand to gain by suffering for and dying for a fabricated story about the resurrection of Jesus? Nothing. We would have expected the whole thing to implode given the hardship they faced for standing by it. And other Christians suffered persecution as well, those who were not part of the original group but joined later. 
You know, if I don't have firsthand knowledge of something, how willing am I going to be to suffer for it? Only if I'm convinced that it's true. And so what convinced all these people? What could possibly be that persuasive? Well, probably not just one thing, but many things. But their suffering testifies to the strength of the case that was so persuasive in the first century. And I think this is really huge. Number nine, some of the early disciples wrote about Jesus and his birth, life, ministry, miracles, death, and resurrection. And they also wrote about the early movement. And these were copied and were circulated and they enjoyed widespread popularity. And here, of course, we are referring to simply the New Testament. But all we are doing is acknowledging that the books and letters of the New Testament, including the four gospel accounts of Christ, exist. That's all we're doing. We're just acknowledging that they exist. We don't have to claim anything else at this point. But the fact that they exist, that says a lot. So how could such writings have survived during a time when eyewitnesses could have refuted what these writings reported, if what they reported could have been refuted? So think for a moment here of all the books that have been written on the various conspiracies regarding the assassination of President Kennedy. Over 1,500 have been published in the last 50, 60 years. Can anyone here name even three of those books, or two of them, or even one? Well, we can't because such books, they make a splash in the market, and then they're quickly discredited because their theories and claims don't line up with all the facts, and so they soon fade away. We forget them. We find them at garage sales, goodwill, that sort of thing. But the four Gospels and the other writings which report on Christ's resurrection, they did survive. They were subjected to the scrutiny of the first century eyewitnesses and to the first century critics. They can't be dismissed. This is a, you know, this is a weighty argument. Or for that matter, if the authors themselves knew that their accounts would be discredited by the facts, why would they have even bothered to write them in the first place? So just for a moment here, think of a simple thing here. Something as simple as the story of the feeding of the 5,000. If something about that was off, that would discredit the whole gospel immediately. Any number of the people there that day could come forth and say, hey, no, 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 wait a minute, I was there, that's not what happened at all. We weren't fed, we were all hungry, and we went home hungry, and we're not happy about it. Or there were several wagons of food there that people brought in. I don't know what this miracle talk is all about. There were wagons of food. Or we were told ahead of time that it could be a long day, and so we all brought provisions for that. The point is, this would be an easy story to discredit if false. And this is just one of many. The gospel is filled with this. You know, lots of events that include lots of people. It's all out in the open. It could have been easy enough to check out. They would have never survived these gospel accounts, much less enjoy widespread acceptance and popularity if they were built on lies. And this would especially be true if the grand miracle, the resurrection of Jesus, was a lie. And finally, number 10, we know that Jews worshiped on the Sabbath, Saturday. And we know that the beginning of the first, we know that at the beginning, the first converts to Christianity were Jews. And we know that as Christians, they now worshiped on the first day of the week, Sunday. So what was so special about Sunday? What could possibly cause them to make such a radical change? Worship on the Sabbath was deeply, it was a 
deeply entrenched tradition. That was their sacred day of the week for thousands of years. One of the ways that the people of God were set apart from the pagans was the way that they regarded the Sabbath day. If anything was unmovable, this would be it. The fact that it was moved tells us just how important and monumental Sunday was. And so the question then is, what made Sunday so important, so special? What was it about Sunday? Today we mark the resurrection of Christ. So our, for again, for our purposes here on this minimal effects approach, the goal is not to conclusively prove that Jesus rose from the dead. That hopefully that can be done, but the goal is far less ambitious, and it's very valuable. It's a va valuable goal. It's to show that there are sound reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We want to give the skeptics something to think about to help them see that the basis for the Christian faith is not based on wishful thinking. Instead of doubting Christianity, he should be doubting his skepticism of it. The reasons to believe are logical, they are responsible, they are sound, and they deal with actual history and events. And if our interaction prompted some genuine interest with them on that, then great. The whole thing can be checked out further by them if they want. So I'll conclude with these words from William Lane Craig. Um, there's a lot of different quotes I could have used, but I, I kind of just brought it down to something that he said in his chapter on reasonable faith. This is good. This, this is all well put, as we would expect. Without the resurrection, early Christianity could not have come into being. That's very clear. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated. Even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of his being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity, therefore, hinges on belief of the early disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. But the question is, what does, how does one explain the origin of that belief? As R.H. Fuller says, even the most skeptical critic must posit some mysterious X to get the movement going. But what was that X? Indeed, what was that X? Well, you and I know what it was. And um, let's say it again as I conclude here. We have the empty tomb, we have the resurrection appearances, and we have the rise and birth of the Christian faith. They all point to the same remarkable conclusion, that God really did raise Jesus from the dead. Amen. Josh? Thank you, Wendell. That was a, a clear, succinct, and helpful message. Uh, I think as we close this morning, it would be equally helpful to hear from Paul himself. So if you have your Bibles or your phones with you, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And here the Apostle Paul is sort of laying out his case, and he's recognizing that the Christian faith rests fully on the resurrection of Christ. And so he wants to place pretty careful emphasis here on its historical reality. And to that end, he does two things. First of all, he establishes that he is not the only teacher, he's not the only apostle to teach Christ's physical resurrection, but that there are others who witnessed it and who taught on it. 
And second, he presents a compelling argument that Wendell already laid out so well for us, that belief in the resurrection is not this big stretch. It's not a giant hurdle. It's not a blind step when you consider the overwhelming number of eyewitnesses, the overwhelming number of people who had seen Christ in person post-burial, post-resurrection, and, and who were still alive to vouch for it. Go and ask them. See for yourselves. So let's read along. Uh, read along with me as I read. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, even though some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Rich passage. I encourage you to go back, re-listen to this message, and just read through that passage in its entirety. Let's stand together. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Go and love each other well this week.